Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast with me, Jacob Granger. This week, we take a look at the Seattle Times Investigative Journalism Fund by speaking with Vice President of Innovation, Product and Development, Sharon Chan. We're going to be taking a look at how it works and why it has come about. The long-term goal is to build the largest local investigative reporting team in the country, right? That's the North Star. And how we're doing that is we're seeking personal champions of the free press to support this fund. So this is targeting individual donors. Um, You don't have to be Bill Gates to support the work. You don't have to be Paul Allen. We're looking for civic leaders who care about the future of Seattle and our region. We're looking for people who care about saving things that matter. And we're looking for mavericks who want to book the trend of the demise of local journalism in America. So that was Sharon Chan, who is heading up the Seattle Times pledge to create their investigative journalism team of the future. To do that, they have turned to their readers and existing subscribers for help. Today, we find out why and how. The Investigative Journalism Fund is an initiative run with their Seattle Foundation. It's currently in phase one of potentially four. In this $500,000 initial pledge, they aim to hire one editor and two reporters for this team, expenses and all. It launched last month and is now sitting in the ballpark of $170,000. It's the first of its kind for the publication, so I guess the key question is why? Why does a publication who has remained independently owned since before the 1900s suddenly need to ask their readers for donations. I think that local journalism is in crisis. 20 years ago, every city newspaper made money in America, made money the same way. They sold subscriptions and advertising. Subscriptions are a break-even business. What subscribers pay pays for the printing of the paper and the delivery to their doorstep. Um, And then what paid for all the journalists was advertising, the reporters, the photographers, the editors, in particular, print advertising. So print advertising is going away. It's not coming back. And the digital advertising that replaces is replacing it is inherently cheaper, right? It's dimes on dollars compared to print advertising. And the playing field, it's not level. It's sloped steeply towards global platforms like Facebook and Google. Um, Burrell just put out numbers and they said that 77% of all local advertising is spent with Facebook and Google, two companies that have no investment in providing local news and information of the type that a local newspaper would do. So that's what's going on with the business model. So 10 years ago, when every newspaper began cutting, you know, the Seattle Times began looking to build a new model to fund in-depth journalism that deepens coverage and conversation about the most urgent public issues that are critical to the future of our region. Um, And the reason we did that is because we're different. We're family owned. We're owned by the same family that has lived right here since 1896. We're the only big city paper in America that can say that. Um, And it's a family that's committed to public service journalism that serves this community. So what's the lay of the land for other titles in America? Why do they not manage to remain independently owned? And what is the impact of that? I mean, most papers in America, as this economic crisis swept the entire industry, they sold to chains, they sold to hedge funds. So there's been massive consolidation and job cuts because the hedge fund owners just want to cut costs. And you know, milk all the cash out of the organization. You know, this is why there's just less and less credible news that verifies facts, that reports all sides of the story, that digs deep for the truth. And it's why there's more and more misinformation, because that's what's flowed into the gap. Partisan opinion masquerading as 
news and straight up fake news like propaganda designed by Russian operatives to sow discord and hate. I will say that the paradox is that the demand for real journalism has never been greater. Um, at the height of our business, we reached 500,000 people um, on their doorstep through our printed paper. You know, last month we reached 9 million people on our website. Is that the only factor at play, though? There is another important context that Sharon points out. It's also the type of reporting that is the most expensive and risky to do, right? You need highly skilled reporters. There's legal risks. You know, the paper has been sued in the past over its investigative reporting. And even if those lawsuits are frivolous, it costs money to defend ourselves. And this type of reporting takes a long time to do. So it's not the type of reporting where someone can come in and start churning out a story a week. And that story, that weekly story is going to help drive readers of our website into our paywall and to decide to subscribe. So that's why we think investigative journalism is really the place where um, it makes sense to go to individual donors who care about the future and the strength of our democracy to underwrite that journalism. So what are the ingredients of this potential team and how will this help to combat the struggles of local news titles in America? I mean, a couple of things that we think are really important to an investigative team of the future that is built with the community is, first of all, collaboration. So we're open to collaborating with other media organizations and as well as just community organizations. We want to create a dialogue and we want the journalism to inspire conversation in the community. And we want that conversation in the community to then inform and deepen the journalism itself. So I think collaboration and community engagement are super important. People in um, consumers of media today do not want a lecture hall style version of journalism. They want a journalism that feels like a conversation. Um, the second one is diversity. We think our staff needs to reflect the region our we're serving, and we think the stories need to reflect the diversity of the region we're serving. Um, and then uh, innovation, so just a basic, right? Are we using the most groundbreaking storytelling techniques and reporting techniques? And then solutions. So Seattle Times has been doing solutions journalism with the Solutions Journalism Network since 2013. We've learned that people actually don't want to just hear about problems. And in fact, sometimes they just tune out after a while if you just keep hammering on problems. And we believe that this is actually something that investigative reporting needs. It needs to also report, bring the same rigorous investigative reporting techniques to reporting on um, things that are working to address problems, not just the problems themselves. In terms of story deliverables, we have started sketching what those are going to be. So we have a steady flow of journalism to share with our donors and our community. But all that is going to depend on when people get hired. So the Seattle Foundation has evolved from partnerships in the public service domain to the creation of their different labs which specialise in different areas by working with different sectors. It's worth 11 jobs in their newsroom and 10% of their budget. This, the investigative journalism fund, Sharon says, is the next step in their evolution. Here's why. What is the next step in our community-funded journalism work? With Education Lab, it had been philanthropic and nonprofit supported. With our other lab, Traffic Lab, it was corporate supported and nonprofit supported. With our third lab, Project Homeless, it was philanthropic and corporate um, supported. So we're like, well, we could create another lab around a specific topic if we wanted to continue to grow this work, or we could think about actually pushing the model forward in, toward individuals. Um, so for us, it was a natural evolution of 
really eight years of work at the Seattle Times. Um, so that was one of the reasons why now. We'd also been really inspired by the success we'd seen of journalism nonprofits, right? Organizations like the Marshall Project and ProPublica and Texas Tribune and the locals like Voice of San Diego and VT Digger. Um, and that shows that there's a market out there. I should also say there was this amazing public radio campaign in our region to purchase um, a public radio station that was being sold where individuals together raised $7 million to buy that radio station. So that was another proof point for us that this community of individuals cares about local journalism. Um, so that was why we saw that the community was willing out there and we thought here, why don't we create a way for them to do the journalism that is most expensive, but also most impactful. So all these things we're talking about here, the context of declining advertising space, the cost of investigative journalism, the need for intervention, these are all things which Sharon needed to convey and is still conveying to their readers in order to get their ongoing support. How are they doing that? We did a test event last year that was specifically targeting long-tenured subscribers. We had them at our printing press. We had a panel of investigative reporters and editors talking about investigative journalism. And then we took them on a tour. So after all these events, we would do just debriefs, like gather feedback at the end of it with all the people who came in person. And then we would do surveys afterwards of the attendees. The things that came out of it were, A, once we explained it to them, people understood why we were interested in creating a campaign to fund investigative journalism. They understood the business reasons, right? What are the changes happening in the digital landscape that are making it harder to provide the same amount of journalism as we have in the past? In fact, one of them I remember said in their survey, I'll never complain about the price of my subscription again. <laughs> which I thought was fantastic that we had reached that reader and helped them understand what were the factors behind the Seattle Times and what had happened over the past 10 years. So um, that's actually what subscribers are really interested. Longtime subscribers who are really into the Seattle Times want to get to know us and meet us in person and hear about the journalism. So the event aspect of it, they're interested in, and then they want to know what's going on, how can they help Right, because these people love their Seattle Times and they, they want to see it to continue to thrive and exist. Um, and then lastly, like we're creating space for them to actually help um, create the type of journalism they want to see. Many of these subscribers knew all the investigative stories we had done, all the major investigative stories we had done of the past year. They were able to really cite very specific details from stories in my conversations with them. So these people love investigative journalism and we're here to create an opportunity for them to support and underwrite even more of that. So I, I think like this is, that's actually interesting to subscribers. So the campaign has no fixed deadline. It has no fixed contributions. There's no hard marketing tone on it at all. Why? And how then do you manage expectations and not over promise? What went into the thinking at Seattle Times there? 
Well, that's one of the reasons we have goals in phases, right? I mean, but that's why we've broken it down into what we think is a manageable first phase. We believe that we can get there and that we can hire these three people. And that's also the reason it's in phases. We, we don't want to make everyone wait till you've given us millions and millions of dollars. And then once we have those millions of dollars, we're going to hire a whole team of people and then you're going to see a story. What we want to do is raise 500,000, hire three journalists, and then you're going to start seeing the stories out there. You know, we're already like drafting job descriptions um, and going through the job requisition process internally because we want to, as soon as we hit that $500,000 goal, like we want to, as soon as possible after that, have reporters here who are reporting stories and publishing in the Seattle Times. So I think like that's part of the process of building trust. You see the impact in the community. And then you decide whether you want to continue to contribute or share this opportunity exists with other people you know. Um, so for me, part of that building trust is like you asked why, uh, what is like the ultimate goal? You know, what's the deadline? Well, we're trying not to set that because we don't want to set unrealistic expectations for our community either. We're learning right along with them. Great insights from Sharon, and I'll be keeping tabs on how the campaign shapes up moving forward. Thanks very much to her for speaking to me, and of course, thank you to you at home or on the commute for tuning in. Before I leave you, here's Jasmine from our courses board who has some training opportunities she'd like to share with you. Want to start making your own videos for social media? Join our one-day creating social video workshop to find out how to shoot and edit films specifically for Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram takes place on the 24th of June in central London. You can find out more at journalism.co.uk slash s43. Don't forget, if you'd like to feature on one of our podcasts, you can reach us at Journalism News on Twitter. Until next time.